Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Hope you are all having a wonderful week. I love these weeks leading up to the holidays as we prepare to spend more time with friends and family, which is a perfect chance to tell them a little bit more about us. Be sure to bring up our podcast, tell your friends and family about us, as it is the single best way to help our podcast. Let's get to the week in review. Last Sunday, Paula and I brought you the story of how a congressman from Ohio was leading the charge for how the country would run after the Civil War. Then, on Wednesday, the Ohio Mysteries Backroads crew, Mike and Dan, told you about Ohio's role in The Wizard of Oz. Definitely give that a listen. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, as our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 plus years telling stories just like this at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. I'm hoping that tonight will be the first in a series about the history of street and bridge names throughout Ohio. Some of these names have origins that are a mystery to 21st century residents, but in many cases, a little digging reveals an incredible piece of our past. And you can help me out. After you listen to this episode, you'll have an idea what I'm looking for. And if you have a street or bridge in your community with a tragic or colorful or inspiring story behind it, then let us know. More on how to do that at the end of tonight's show. For now, we've got some driving to do. I'll take the wheel. You hop in the passenger seat and enjoy the scenery as we head for Ohio's southwest corner. Welcome to Montgomery County, home to the city of Dayton, and at one time, home to the king and queen of the American Gypsies. This colorful subset of the Dayton community has been memorialized by two street names on the north end. The residential Gypsy Drive, which is spelled G-I-P-S-Y, and the commercial Stanley Avenue, Stanley being the last name of the royal couple. Our tale begins in 1854, when two brothers, 
Levi and Benjamin Stanley left England with their families and sailed across the Atlantic to New York. They were members of a culture called Romani. This is not the same as Romanian. According to Wikipedia, the Romani originated in northern India centuries ago, and over the years, they slowly moved westward. Many of them were traveling musicians and dancers and itinerant traders. It might be more accurate to describe them as professional wanderers. The leadership of this clan, which numbered in the hundreds of thousands, came to be based in England, and in 1854, they made the leap to America. Now, the crown of this new American clan might have fallen to Benjamin Stanley, who settled in New England, but Benjamin had been disowned by his father. Worse yet, he had a curse placed on him and all future generations who followed him. Well, you can hardly have a cursed king, so that left the job to his brother, Levi. Levi and his queen, Matilda Jowles, first settled near Troy, Ohio, in Miami County, but they soon moved to Dayton and made that their headquarters, at least for the summer months. The Romani lived in camps by the Mad and Miami rivers, so each winter, their extended family group would depart Dayton for warmer climbs with this grand procession of caravans going down Main Street. And each spring, the parade of caravans would return. Levi gave his occupation as a horse trader, and Matilda was said to be a talented fortune teller and mesmerist. As the daughter of gypsy royalty in England, she once said these skills were magically passed down to her alone because she was the eldest daughter. Queen Matilda died during the winter of 1878 when they were staying in Vicksburg, Mississippi. She had been battling an illness for two years. Her body was embalmed and returned to Dayton, where it was temporarily placed in a receiving vault for eight months. Every day of those eight months, clansmen would come to place fresh flowers at the vault. The funeral wasn't scheduled until late summer, so that people had plenty of time to make plans for getting to Dayton. When Matilda was finally moved from the receiving vault to her mausoleum, more than 20,000 mourners were on hand, including a dozen Romani chiefs from Canada to England. Newspaper accounts said a thousand carriages lined the procession route from the river campsite to the Stanley family plot at Woodland Cemetery. The grave was marked by a 20-foot column topped by an angel in white marble. More than 60 extended family members are buried in that cemetery. Levi himself lived to the ripe old age of 96. He died in 1908 when his son Levi, who went by the name Sugar, became the head of the family. By then, so much had changed. Where Queen Matilda's death made front-page news, the national press didn't even mention Levi's passing. He also died in the winter while the family was camped in Marshall, Texas. 
and when he was returned to Dayton and buried the following spring, only 30 family members attended the service. In an article about the arrival of Levi's remains in Dayton by train, it was noted that his family was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Income earned equal parts through horse trading and fortune-telling. But by then, the family had also branched out into real estate. They had substantial land holdings in Montgomery County, mostly in the townships of Harrison, Wayne, Mad River, and Butler. Still, not everything changed. As late as the 1950s, descendants of those early Romani settlers were still setting up their camps on the shores of a lake near St. Paris, Ohio, north of Dayton in Champaign County. So that's the story behind Gypsy Drive and Stanley Road, both located in North Dayton. By the way, I understand the term gypsy is embraced by some Romani. After all, they have a body called the Gypsy Council, but it is considered offensive by others who believe it carries too many negative connotations. My use of the word in this episode was rooted in the fact that it's a story about how Gypsy Drive came to have its name and not in any way intended to marginalize the very proud Romani culture. Okay, let's get moving. We've got 82 miles to cover between Dayton and Delaware County in central Ohio, just north of Columbus. It's named for the Delaware Indian tribe that used to live there. But within Delaware County is a road that represents an entirely different culture. It's called Africa Road, in Orange Township near the intersection of Big Walnut and adjacent to the Alum Creek State Park. More than three million people visit that park every year and see the name Africa Road. And while it's unusual enough that they may wonder about it, no doubt very few of them are aware of the heartwarming story of courage and compassion that led to its name. More than three million people visit that park every year and see the name Africa Road. And while it's unusual enough that they may wonder about it, no doubt very few of them are aware of the heartwarming story of courage and compassion that led to its name. Our tale begins before it was called Africa Road, when in that place existed a hamlet called East Orange. They had a post office, a general store, and a saloon. And just down the road a bit on the east side of Alum Creek was the Methodist Church that residents of this crossroads attended. The church had been around since 1828, and one of its leaders was a local farmer, Samuel Patterson. Samuel Patterson was an abolitionist, even though, in general, the greater Methodist Church supported slavery at that time. Samuel didn't care what his bishops believed. He ignored their teachings and invited people to the church podium to speak about the horrors of human bondage and the need to end it. Samuel and his neighbors did more than just talk. 
They were conductors on the Underground Railroad, that secret network of people who helped runaway slaves navigate through Ohio on their way to freedom in Canada. They hid them, fed them, and moved them to the next station on what was a treacherous journey. When word of their activity got to the Methodist bishop, the anti-slavery contingent had to leave the church. So they started their own congregation of Wesleyan Methodists. And for years, services were held in a cabin on the Alum Creek Flats near Samuel Patterson's farmhouse. We have no idea how many enslaved people made their way through the East Orange Station, But we do know that in 1859, three dozen of them decided to stay and call the place home. That year, a group of 36 former slaves crossed the Ohio River in search of a safe place to land. They had belonged to a plantation in North Carolina owned by a family with the last name Austin. The master of the plantation died, leaving the estate to his wife. And she, defying her husband's wishes and the accepted views of the time, decided to free the slaves. She provided two wagons and a carriage, as well as provisions and cash, and gave ownership of the men, women, and children to a man that she trusted with power of attorney. For their safety, they needed to officially remain slaves until they were in free territory. Over 25 days, this man led them across half the state of North Carolina, over the mountains of West Virginia, and across the Ohio River into Portsmouth, a distance of 360 miles. But it wasn't good enough just across the borders into Ohio. Slave catchers, Raiding parties from Kentucky were always on the lookout for anyone with black skin who could be captured and sold back into bondage, whether they were slaves or not. Underground Railroad conductors in Ohio helped guide the new arrivals further north until they reached Delaware County. It was springtime, and Samuel Patterson and his fellow farmers needed some help. They convinced the Austin party to stay and work the farms. The community would look out for them and help them build log cabins. And so on May the 15th, 1859, Mistress Austin's trusted man signed the deeds of emancipation for all his weary travelers, and they stayed. Not surprisingly, Many people in the area found a way to mock this little, now-diverse community. They started referring to East Orange as Africa. Well, I can think of no better way to turn the tables on a name-caller than by embracing the name. And that's what they did. The name East Orange disappeared, and the hamlet of Africa was born with the main road through the town the very road traveled by so many escaped slaves, named Africa Road. After the Civil War, the freed slaves and their descendants expanded throughout Delaware and Westerville and the counties of Van Wert and Paulding. 
Samuel Patterson's grandson later wrote an account of this incident and added that sometime in the 1870s, Samuel went to North Carolina to find the woman who had freed the slaves. Her name was Miriam Austin. It seems unlikely, however, that he got to meet her. One historian who looked into this story years later said it appeared to him that Miriam had sent the slaves off to their freedom while on her deathbed, and that she died the day after they left. Africa never materialized into a full-fledged village, and the crossroads that it was has all but disappeared. But Africa Road remains, a name that was meant to hurt and offend, but instead memorialized for all time a sweet and inspiring piece of history. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. We've got one more stop today, folks, and about 110 miles to cover as we drive from Delaware County to Summit County and the Northeast Ohio city of Akron. Here, you'll find Memorial Parkway, which winds itself from the part of town known as North Hill to the western neighborhoods of West Hill and Highland Square. To do this, it must span the Little Cuyahoga River, it was a big deal when this crosstown route was installed in 1932 because being able to lift motorists over the river valley cut the travel time between the two parts of town by 20 minutes. But this road that we're on wasn't always called Memorial Parkway. Back in 1964, it was still the Talmadge Parkway named for the way it feeds into Talmadge Avenue and eventually east into the city of Talmadge. As much of a boon as this road was to residents of the north and west, structurally, it was a bad idea. Tons of dirt were needed to construct this road, and this dirt was packed over an old sewer trunk line that went downhill to the river. The sewer line was made of clay tile, and not ever meant to bear the weight of all that dirt and traffic that was placed over it. More than once, parts of the sewer collapsed or ruptured. Crews would repair it and the road as best they could, and the city carried on. But it was a tragedy waiting to happen. On July the 21st, 1964, a torrential downpour dumped three inches of rain in just an hour and a half, compromising the old sewer line beneath Talmadge Parkway, just as 47-year-old Velma Schidler was driving over it. The Chevrolet Corvair also carried in its back seat Velma's 10-year-old daughter Claudia and Claudia's friend, 13-year-old Janet Lewis. 
Velma had picked them up from a swim class at Firestone High School. At 3.15 p.m., as the car traveled east on Talmadge Parkway and neared the Akron, Canton, and Youngstown Railroad trestle, the road collapsed, plunging the compact car into a 40-foot hole. Several people stopped to see what they could do for the trio, and among the Whitby rescuers were 19-year-old Huey O'Neill and a patrolman, 27-year-old Ronald Rotrick. Huey, a Hoban High School graduate and freshman at Georgetown University, was in the traffic that was stopped by the collapse of the sinkhole. He got out to see what the problem was, and he could see a car laying inside the hole, tilted on its edge. An older man had a rope and was making plans to go down, but young Huey took the rope from him and put it around himself. As Huey descended into the hole, he was followed by Ronald Rotruck. Rotruck was a five-year veteran of the police force and had just finished his shift. He was headed back to the Akron police station to clock out when he heard the call and responded to the scene. The men went down into that hole and they were able to pull Velma, the mom, to safety. Then the teen friend from the back seat, they got her out. Then they went back in a third time for little Claudia. That's when the muddy hole gave way, caving in and burying the little girl as well as Hugh and Ronald. A new rescue mission was launched, and thousands of spectators turned out to watch the effort. It took two days, but they finally recovered the bodies of all three. Ronald Rotrek left behind a wife and three young daughters. Hugh O'Neill, by the way, was the grandson of General Tire and Rubber Company's founder, William O'Neill. Both men were posthumously awarded the Carnegie Medal for Heroism. Talmadge Parkway was closed for more than three months as repairs were made. A few weeks after it reopened, it was renamed Memorial Parkway in honor of the victims. Akron Beacon Journal reporter Mark J. Price found the daughter of Officer Rotruck a few years ago, and she recalled the day that she learned her dad was involved in the cave-in. Debbie Foss said her mom was serving spaghetti to her and her sisters, Linda and Lori, when police arrived at their home to tell them what happened. She said, Growing up, my family never talked about the accident, Since then, I have been reading everything that I could about that day, and I'm amazed at how many people risked their lives and worked around the clock to try to rescue and later recover my dad, Hugh, and Claudia. This past summer of 2023, Debbie Foss and others paid for and installed a monument to the three people who died that day. It's at the bottom of Memorial Parkways Hill, next to the dog park, and at the trailhead for the Ohio and Erie Canal towpath trail, right where pedestrians can walk up to the marker and read it. Well, that's it for our, hopefully, first installment of Street Names. If you like this idea, I need your help. Drop us a line at feedback 
at ohiomysteries.com. That's our email address. And let us know if you know of a street or bridge named for something like one of these stories we told. An interesting piece of history, a tragedy, or an inspirational memory. Hope to hear from you. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.